Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law, and we have a lot of law and politics to talk about this week. We have a Supreme Court-packed episode for you. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. We are going to kick it off by talking about the four-day confirmation hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to see whether or not she will be the next Supreme Court justice. We're going to talk about some breaking news out of the Supreme Court dealing with a Texas death row inmate. And finally, we're going to end with news about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and text that his wife, Ginny Thomas, sent to the former chief of staff regarding the 2020 presidential election. So Joe, with all of that, please kick us off. Let's talk about our first topic and welcome. Hello, Jessica. It's always wonderful to be here with you. We're going to jump off talking about that confirmation hearing for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. First, we'll talk about how we got here and then talk about exactly what happened this week. This drama started with the January announcement by Justice Stephen Breyer that he would retire at the end of the current Supreme Court term. Given that there are nine justices on the Supreme Court, when one of them retires or dies, that's turnover in a key position in our government. The prior president, Donald Trump, got three appointments in just one term, and that makes up one-third of the entire court. Simple math there. With a shady assist by then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who stonewalled Barack Obama's pick after Antonin Scalia passed away in February of 2016, Neil Gorsuch wound up being confirmed for that seat. Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett followed, tipping the conservative majority of the court to 6-3, where it currently stands. Our current president, Joe Biden, made a pledge during his campaign that he would nominate a black woman to the court if he had the opportunity to make an appointment. And he followed through on that promise when Breyer announced his retirement. After several weeks of vetting, Biden announced the appointment of United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is younger than I am. Note that makes me question my life choices. Now, as outlined in the United States Constitution, the current president nominates someone to fill a vacancy on the court, and the Senate votes on that nominee, and a simple majority confirmation elevates that person to sit on the court, or perhaps not. And that's what happened this week. Jessica, so can you take it from here? Joe, I think it's really important that you ended with what does the Constitution actually require here? And the Constitution says the president can nominate and the Senate then provides advice and consent. The Senate votes to confirm the president's nominee. Now, there is nothing in the Constitution that says we need a four-day hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we need to have public hearings at all. So one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was watching this circus horror show, however we want to describe it, is that this really has become theater in the sense that this is about or should be about the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the Senate deciding whether or not this nominee is in fact qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. And that's how, frankly, it used to be. So it's always been a bit of theater. It's always been a bit of a circus, but not like this. Look, it is a political process. The president nominates, the Senate confirms. That inherently is political, but it has not always broken down along these partisan lines. Judge Jackson would be replacing her former boss, Justice Breyer. 
he was overwhelmingly confirmed by the Senate. Think back to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, overwhelmingly confirmed by the Senate. We're not going to see those numbers again. And we'll talk about predictions in a little bit, but Judge Jackson, who is eminently qualified, she has two degrees from Harvard. She herself was a Supreme Court clerk, as I mentioned. She worked for Justice Breyer, whose seat she would be filling. She would be the first former federal public defender ever to be a Supreme Court justice. And of course, the headline, the first female African-American justice ever, she is clearly qualified. She's proven that with her resume. She's proven that over her two days of answering questions by the senators, but she will not be overwhelmingly confirmed. And that's really where we are when it comes to these confirmation hearings. Okay, Jessica, the nomination of Kentanji Brown Jackson alone is a historic first, or should I say unhistoric first. In the 233-year history of the court, out of 115 justices, only seven of them have been anything other than white men, usually old white men. If confirmed, she would be just the eighth as a student of the court, as a law professor, as someone who is not a white male, Jessica, what are your thoughts on this historic nomination? Well, or, or as any person who's a member of the American public and realizes that it's not only important for our government institutions to reflect us in terms of how people in leadership positions look, but more importantly, in terms of having a diversity of life experiences, a diversity of thought, a diversity of ideology. So this is hugely important. There's no way to overstate, I think, what a big deal it is to ensure that, again, our highest institutions of every branch of government reflect Americans and America. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, and I've talked a lot about it over the last week, how historic this nomination is. And a couple of thoughts. One is, I can't believe that in 2022, we're still making history, that it took us this long to get to this point. And the other thing I've been thinking about is, in so many ways, the nomination of Judge Jackson is groundbreaking. It's historic, as we've now said a number of times, the first, she would be the first female African-American justice ever on our nation's highest court. Also, the first former federal public defender. But in a lot of ways, as I tried to stress, her resume looks exactly like other Supreme Court justices. And I think that's what makes her such a smart and good pick in the sense that like many other Supreme Court justices recently, she would be replacing her former boss. She had government experience. She has private practice experience. She has judicial experience. She's worked on the D.C. Court of Appeals, and that is typically seen as a launching pad for other Supreme Court justices. And so she has a resume that looks so different in some ways than other judicial nominees. And in other ways, she has a resume that is just dazzling and absolutely in the mold of other judicial nominees. All right, Jessica, thank you very much for that assessment. Now let's talk about how this played out this week on the ground. 
Supreme Court nomination hearings used to be borderline performative affairs, as you said just a few minutes ago, and nominees appointed by presidents of both parties were affirmed with votes from the opposition party. But that ship has seemingly now sailed. It might be possible to cast the current climate as post-Bork because the 1987 appointment of Robert Bork by Ronald Reagan, who was not confirmed after an aggressive campaign by Democrats, and worthy of note here, A Democratic senator from Delaware named Joe Biden was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time and that Biden initially supported Bork but then rescinded that support Bork was not confirmed. Then came Clarence Thomas in 1991, this is going to come back to haunt us later in this episode, who was eventually confirmed despite allegations of sexual harassment. I mentioned before that Obama's pick in 2016 didn't even get a hearing after getting stonewalled by Republicans. So here we are, and Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing began with opening statements on Monday earlier this week. For two days, she faced questions from senators, and we'll get into more detail on how that played out shortly. And then on Thursday, the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on the Judiciary gave a nonpartisan peer assessment of Jackson, and other outside witnesses echoed points made earlier in the week by Democratic supporters and Republicans in opposition of her nomination. So after promising civil discourse at the opening of the hearings, the tack of the challenges by Republicans was obvious from the start. Jessica, can you please tell us about their strategy? Yeah, so I watched, I would say, almost all of the first three days of the confirmation hearings. And my takeaway after Monday, when it was just the senators giving speeches, and then at the very end, Judge Jackson giving an opening statement, is that this was not a good advertisement for the Senate. And in fact, I wrote a little bit tongue-in-cheek for an MSNBC column. I said, you know, this is a good day for the abolish the Senate uh, set for those activists who are working to say we shouldn't have a Senate anymore. And because so many of the statements had nothing to do with Judge Jackson or her resume or her experience or whether or not she's qualified to sit on the nation's highest court. So to start with, one of the lines of attack that is – just become really, I think, a tired trope at this point is that anybody whose judicial philosophy may be seen as, you know, center left and or progressive, that they're actually just a politician, that they are a liberal activist, and they want to make decisions that go beyond the bounds of judicial constraint. And I think that's why we heard for days, Judge Jackson say over and over again, versions of I'm going to stay in my lane, my role is confined, my role is limited, trying to, I think, quell these fears and or stop this attack that she really is just a politician who can't wait to get on the court and rewrite our system of laws. But the irony, as I was listening to me, Joe, is that particularly the Republicans of the Senate, spent a lot of time asking her to weigh in on political issues and on policy questions, but then attacked her for potentially being a judge who was going to act like a politician. And it felt like this really bizarre divide to me. So, you know, again, we heard as we always do about, frankly, any nominee who's picked by a Democratic president, that this person's just a liberal activist. Then we heard some about the idea that she's supported by left-wing, dark-money nonprofit groups. As a number of people have already pointed out, that's a bit of a strange attack because these 
quote unquote, dark money nonprofit groups heavily support nominees from both sides of the ideological spectrum. And, you know, the other thing that I noticed right off the bat is that it sometimes felt like we were just relitigating Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. We heard from Republicans so often, as you just said, how these confirmation hearings will be different, will be civil. Of course, in many cases, that didn't actually happen. But there were a lot of Republican senators who kept harping on the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And I also thought that was strange, Joe, because why is it helpful to remind us that he was accused of sexual assault, particularly when we're talking about a nominee who has nothing in her background that would indicate that she's had anything close to uh, questions about her personal behavior? And so those were some of the first lines of attack that I noticed. There were a number of them, Jessica, but there was one main theme that several senators kept circling back to, and that was her record on the sentencing of child pornography defendants. Now, Jessica, I watched some of these too. Is this Republicans grasping at straws, or is there any, as you like to say, they're there when it comes to her record? I do like to say that, and I wish I could say anything other than no, unequivocally, there is no there there. And the reason I wish I could say that is because I wish our elected representatives, that our senators weren't just making things up from whole cloth. But that is what's happening here. There is no there there to these allegations that she is soft on people who violate child pornography laws. And this has been debunked and fact-checked. And in fact, there's a prominent conservative scholar who wrote in the National Review that he does not support Judge Jackson, but it has nothing to do with these baseless claims that she's somehow soft on crime in general, and then soft on, again, people who violate child pornography laws. So it's interesting how this kind of snowballed. It started in the beginning of the week or last week with um, Senator Hawley, who himself clerked for the Chief Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts, coming out with these allegations. And they were pretty widely combated and said, there's nothing there. And then we saw throughout the week that a number of the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee started asking her about it. And we heard Ted Cruz ask her about it, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Marsha Blackburn. And it was amazing to me that it kind of hit the mainstream questioning. And we heard the judge say a number of times, you've asked this, I've answered this. Again, we know that a lot of this is theater, but I really thought that this was an unfair line of attack. And frankly, in terms of how she did during the confirmation hearings, and understandably, I thought some of her responses were mixed in the sense that you heard, for instance, a Democratic senator like Dick Durbin, I think sometimes give a shorter, pithier, clearer response to why there is, again, to use my overused phrase, no there there when it comes to these allegations. But I think the theory was the more you say the words soft on child pornography and Judge Jackson in the same sentence, then the better it is for Republicans. And look, I think they know that she will be confirmed, but there's a number of Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee that are, I think, going to run for president, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Josh Hawley, and we're seeing the beginning of their 
campaign speeches in, a, in part. Yeah, being in that seat for nomination to the Supreme Court might be called the hottest of hot seats. It's almost impossible. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. No matter what they say, they're going to change the ground underneath you and frame your answers to the next question or implication. But Jessica, before we move on, I would like to say something about this child pornography business. And as I was listening to the hearing, driving around town and watching it on my television, and the repeated accusations of being soft on child pornographers... Uh, I noticed an increasing detachment from reality on the part of Republican senators like Josh Hawley, as you mentioned, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham. The latter of these three himself voted to confirm her to her current job on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia on June 14th of 2021. It's almost as if you can just go back and look up information on things like that. Republicans had to push on something from her judicial record, and child porn certainly garners headlines. Associating a nominee's record to child pornography in any way is damaging to them in the media. But there is something else at play here. There's an element of the more extreme wing of the Republican base that espouses wild conspiracy theories promoted by the QAnon crowd. And one of their favorite tropes is that that the Democratic establishment is part of some kind of cabal of Satan worshipers and pedophiles who run a global sex trafficking operation that controls the United States government, media organizations, and international finance institutions. Now, we all remember Pizzagate and what happened there. Thank God no one got hurt. And here's the kicker. Researchers at the Public Religion Research Institute released the results of research based on four polls just a month ago that found that 25% of Republicans agreed with those QAnon conspiracy theories about child trafficking and the government. 16% of the general population also espouse similar beliefs. That's 44 million people. Dear God, help us. But the sum of all this is that these people vote, and Republicans like Hawley and Cruz know this. Lindsey Graham may not be running for higher office, but it is widely known that Hawley and Cruz have presidential aspirations. And what about the rest of the Republican senators who pressed Kentonji Brown-Jackson in lines of heated questioning, like Graham, who aired decades of Republican grievances, including but not limited to the hearing for Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I know you mentioned that before. Ted Cruz, who used children's books as visual aids and carried on about critical race theory, and Marsha Blackburn, who asked her, quote, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Jessica, from my perspective, we just heard a bunch of very low-pitched dog whistles that reflect centuries of institutionalized racism and sexism. So when it comes to this circus, we've used that word a number of times. What did we just witness here? Well, I think there's the typical circus. And then, as I mentioned, there are moments of it that feel more like a horror show. And Joe, we've said versions of this so many times in the podcast, but notice that none of what we're saying has anything to do with whether or not we agree or disagree with Judge Jackson's philosophy or ideology, or as she said, methodology. None of this has to do with whether or not we agree or disagree with Republicans on policy proposals, on legislation. This really is just about fair questioning. And it sounds so trite, but truth and lies. And so that that's where we are. You asked me specifically, you know, what did I hear? I heard some questions that I think you would hear of any nominee who is the first former federal public defender, where you are going to ask more questions about, are you soft on crime? And somebody who was in private practice, and it's somewhat typical to hear questions of, you know, do you did you support your client, your unpopular client? And there was some attempts 
to tie Judge Jackson to her clients, which of course that's not the role of a lawyer. You zealously advocate for your clients. You don't have to agree with everything that they say and or did. But then there are some, Joe, and I just feel like it's an inescapable conclusion that there's a number of questions that Judge Jackson got. And there were a number of not just questions, but the framing of those questions, how those questions were asked that I don't think somebody with a different gender or a different race would be asked. The amount of times that she was interrupted, that she was yelled over, I just cannot imagine that some of the senators would have asked the same questions in the same way. And let's also remember with respect to her response, she has to be very measured, right? She is not, in my opinion, allowed to have a response that looks anything close to Justice Kavanaugh's response. I mean, Joe, you and I can imagine what would have happened to the Senate chambers if Judge Jackson had started yelling or doing anything other than, frankly, tearing up in the face of kind and supportive words from Senator Booker. Jessica, one point I would like to make is that all of this, as you said before, all of this is theater. I've read a number of stories this week impugning C-SPAN for inciting this kind of circus and giving aspirational politicians 30 minutes to speak in the charade of a line of questioning turns the process into basically a campaign speech. If you put a monkey in front of a camera, it seems that that, it's more likely to make that monkey dance. The cameras are on these senators, and they know this. I think I can sum up this entire thing with one of my favorite phrases I use at the pub and dinner parties, which is that politics is theater for bad actors, and the double entendre is intended. So, Jessica, we've talked about some of the Republicans. What about the Democratic senators who unsurprisingly spoke in favor of Kentaji Brown-Jackson. I know that Cory Booker, you mentioned him just a second ago, made an impassioned speech that touched upon his own experience as the first black senator from New Jersey. I thought that Senator Booker just completely changed the energy in the room. And now, of course, I was streaming it. I wasn't in the room. But when he started talking and he just kind of sat back and he told a story about how he had gone running that morning and that oh, somebody came up to him and basically just wanted to say, I'm so happy that Judge Jackson was nominated. I'm so happy you're part of this process. It just, again, completely changed the energy. And we heard Senator Booker say, I'm going to quote from part of it, it's hard for me not to look at you and not to see my mom, not to see my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. And then later he said, nobody's going to steal that joy. Nobody's going to take this away from me. And we can certainly have a conversation about Senator Booker and his legislative proposals, but I think in that moment he did something needed to combat this onslaught of disinformation and onslaught of, frankly, were in many cases just degrading questions or not even questions. I don't think senators were looking for, in some cases, a real answer. Um, they were just looking to attack and I think score political points. Um, as I said, that was a moment where you saw Judge Jackson, after days of intense questioning, start like almost any human, I imagine, start to wipe away tears. And then 
in a maybe a less emotional moment, we heard uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's long been described as one of the most effective questioners on the Senate Judiciary Committee. She said, as a lawyer who also balanced work with parenthood myself, I particularly enjoyed your story, Judge, about sitting with your dad. You had a coloring book and he was studying his law books. And you heard there Senator Amy Klobuchar really bring the discussion back to Judge Jackson's resume, to her experience, and to telling the full story of who she was, who she is, and why, in the view of many, she will be an exemplary Supreme Court justice. All right. So that's how that played out. And I'm a little exhausted from just talking about it, Jessica. So what happens next, procedurally speaking? What are the next key dates in this process? How far along are we? I I was tired after watching the hearings, and I kept thinking to myself, if I'm tired just watching, imagine how Judge Jackson feels, and then I just pushed ahead, because it's embarrassing that I would feel tired just as an observer. I did some light lie blogging, but that's nothing like sitting before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So what happens next? I think that the Senate Judiciary Committee will fight over some paper, and then they will likely vote on April 4th. And then I believe that there is a scheduled vote before the April 8th recess, the spring recess, where Judge Jackson's nomination will be voted on by the full Senate. And then the question is, um, how many votes does she get? Okay, Jessica, now for the big moment, the $500,000 question. What is your prediction as far as how this vote will go? It's not a foregone conclusion. We know that the Senate is currently split 50-50 and that as Vice President Democrat Kamala Harris can cast a deciding vote. There was breaking news this morning that sometime Biden agenda spoiler West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced his intent to vote in favor of her nomination. So do you think this vote will be close? I really do. So when she was confirmed to the D.C. Court of Appeals less than a year ago, she got three Republican senators who voted in favor of her nomination. One of those was Lindsey Graham. I don't think she gets Graham again. I think we're looking at potentially 52 votes. I think it's not entirely outside of the realm of possibility that Vice President Harris comes in and casts the tie-breaking vote. So we'll see on that. You know, political predictions are always difficult, but I can't imagine a world in which we get more than 55 votes for her. Okay, and we will report back once we have those tallies to keep you all informed. Let's move on. We've got a couple of other Supreme Court stories here. Jessica, on top of all this, the court handed down a decision dealing with religious rights. So tell us what happened here. So on top of all of this, there was some news out of the Supreme Court in terms of a decision that they made at the end of this week. And there was a much anticipated, at least for me, case dealing with a Texas death row inmate, Mr. Ramirez. And he had said that he has the right to have his spiritual advisor, not just in the death chamber, but actually put his hands on Mr. Ramirez and pray audibly. That's a legal question that we didn't have the answer to. And what the Supreme Court said this week in a decision that was eight to one with Justice Clarence Thomas dissenting is that, in fact, Mr. Ramirez does have the right to have a spiritual advisor, again, not just in the chamber, but have him put his hands on Mr. Ramirez, pray audibly while he's being put to death. This is something that, Joe, I think we'll talk about more as the Supreme Court term continues, which is the court 
really being very protective of religious objectors, even when those religious objectors are death row inmates. And this probably leads us into our last topic of the day dealing with the Supreme Court, which is Justice Clarence Thomas, again, the only dissenter in that case. Absolutely, Jessica. Before we go, there was some breaking news just this morning as we were about to record this episode, news that is worth mentioning. On Passing Judgment, we've been closely following the committee investigating the January 6th, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol and its increasingly far-reaching revelations tied to Donald Trump's big lie. It remains to be seen what will happen as a result of the investigation. But this morning, something just jumped out at me. Clarence Thomas, current sitting justice. He's this longest sitting justice on the Supreme Court, having been nominated by George H.W. Bush and confirmed in 1991. It's widely known that he is a staunch conservative, but his wife, Ginny Thomas, proper name Virginia, is an attorney and conservative activist and fundraiser whose activism has become more open in recent years since the pandemic started. This morning's news is that Mrs. Thomas sent 29 text messages to former Trump advisor Mark Meadows, repeatedly urging Trump not to concede to Joe Biden, who is the demonstrable winner and duly elected president. These text messages were discovered among 2,320 total text messages that Meadows provided to the committee. The text messages also revealed that Mrs. Thomas had veered into espousing QAnon-style conspiracy theories and support of Sidney Powell, who you may remember is a controversial lawyer who worked for the 2020 Trump campaign and tried to reverse the results of the election. Thomas also texted about groups of supporters who would help Trump remain in office using terms like, these are quotes, army and cavalry, and one of them went as this. Sounds like Sydney and her team are getting inundated with evidence of fraud, make a plan, release the Kraken, and save us from the left taking America down. Thus ends that text. The Kraken, to which she was referring as a reference to the numerous odious lawsuits filed by Trump's lawyers to try and overturn the results of the 2020 election, and at one point Powell vowed to release the Kraken, her quote, which is itself a reference to a mythical sea creature to devour Biden's legitimate victory. As Dennis Miller once said, stop me before I sub-reference again. Now, Meadows, for his part, occasionally pushed back in his eight replies to Thomas. And I can just see that text thread now, Jessica, in the middle of the night. You up? Yeah, what's up? What's going on? What's up? (laughs) All humor aside, Jessica, we don't have full details on the story, but the implications are troubling, to say the least. Now, from a legal perspective and a Supreme Court perspective, can you please fill us in on some more details for exactly why that's troubling? Sure. So... I think it's no surprise to people who listen to this podcast that Ginny Thomas is active in Republican political circles. She worked very hard against President Obama's health care legislation, Obamacare. She's been involved in what I would characterize as far right wing causes. And I don't think it was any secret that she supported those who marched on January 6th. We don't know exactly what her views are on those who committed crimes or alleged crimes on January 6th. So the question isn't what she's doing. I think we all know what she's doing and we know who she is. The question is, how does this affect Justice Clarence Thomas? A side note that Justice Thomas was released from the hospital this morning. Uh, We don't have word as to when he will be back on the bench, but he did have a health scare and he has now been released. That's a little bit of additional news from this morning. So what happens with respect to his decision-making? Now, there was a related but different 
question that came before the Supreme Court recently regarding the release of White House documents to the January 6th committee. And he was the only one to dissented in that case. But I believe that did not concern these particular text messages. I can double check on that, but I'm pretty sure that that particular suit did not concern these particular text messages. But it it raises the question of whether or not Justice Thomas should recuse himself from any cases dealing with the January 6th committee or the election in general. And I think the answer to that would be yes, that there are enough questions that are just raised by the appearances here that it would merit recusing himself. Of course, Justice Thomas will not recuse himself. And I think that's largely because there is not a mandatory code of ethics that is applicable to Supreme Court justices. Uh, We could have a discussion about whether or not there should be. But again, legally speaking, I think the question is how much, if at all, this affects Justice Thomas. We don't know if he would be making exactly the same decisions um, regardless of his wife's activities. Well, Jessica, so given Justice Thomas's refusal to recuse himself from cases that may involve him, there have been increasing calls for his impeachment based on this. Is this hyperbolic? Is this magical thinking? Is there any kind of situation where it could ever go that far? Would Senate Republicans' heads explode if something like this ever became an actual reality? I'm just going to give the quick answer here, which is it's it's not going to happen. He's not going to be impeached unless something really strange happens, both in terms of we find out more information about Justice Thomas and the composition of the Senate changes. But short of that, he won't be impeached. And frankly, this isn't typically the type of thing. We don't see typical impeachment proceedings against Supreme Court justices. There's nothing typical about this. But I think it's fair to say in those rare instances that this isn't even the facts that would give rise to an impeachment. I absolutely understand why people have said these are the facts that should, but what I'm telling you is these are the facts that I don't think will. There's reality and then there's reality, Jessica. So thank you for discussing these things with me. I appreciate you taking the time to clear some things up. Thank you, Joe. You know how I love our legal roundup episodes and our SCOTUS-packed episodes, and hopefully people liked listening to this one. We will say again, if you are a listener and you haven't already, please subscribe, please rate, please review, or please contact us. Yes, please do. You can find Jessica on Twitter, Instagram, sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at InDepthDay and also at JoeArmstrong.com slash InDepthDay. You can follow our podcast, Passing Judgment, on Twitter at PassJudgmentPod and Instagram at PassingJudgmentPod. Thank you ever so much to everyone for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful weekend. 